Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 5th, 2018. Is this live or is it Memorex? Answer, it's Memorex. Hey, I'm actually on my way to Dickinson, North Dakota. <laughs> I should be there by the time you hear this. Yeah, I'm speaking at Holy Ghost Revival 2.0. <laughs> I think you can catch a live stream of it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that's being put out there for consumption by Christian evangelicals. It's not biblical. It's man-made. It is a twisting of God's word. It is teaching for shameful gain the things that ought not to be teach. It's scratching, itching ears. It's anything but sound biblical doctrine. And there's a lot of people slurping this stuff up going, Amen, amen, this is the best thing ever. And no, it's it's not the best thing ever. This is the kind of stuff that can send people to hell. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Here it is, Friday, Friday, January 5th. Still no word from Cindy Jacobs. None. None at all. (laughs) As to the word of the Lord for 2018, I'm beginning to worry about uh, Cindy Jacobs. She's clearly gone AWOL. Now, uh, there's a rumor. I I heard some buzz out there on social media, on Twitter, that she should be giving the word from the Lord this coming Sunday. So, you know, uh, on January 7th. But that would make her seven days late. Seven days late. And, you know, so, I mean, the, the more organized among us, they, uh, they generally have started to map out their whole year. And so how can the more organized, the, those w- people who don't engage in procrastination actually begin 
to plan out their uh, years without the uh, word of the Lord. So we don't know if the if it's going to be a good year or a bad year. And if there's any discrepancies, we'll be doing some comparative work once it comes out. So I'm hoping maybe Monday that uh, we'll be able to do a little comparative work to see what it is that she's saying, God is saying for this year, compare it to last year and stuff like that. Anyway, you get the idea. So uh, we won't be doing a Cindy Jacobs update today because there's nothing to report. It's just we're reporting that she hasn't reported in, which, again, is weird. I mean, she's really, really late. All right, so let's talk about what it is that we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And I I, I got to kick myself here. I cannot believe I did not, <laughs> did not already cover this. Here it is, the end of the week. And um, on Christmas Day, no joke, it, it was on Christmas Day itself, Vonda Brewer, the nagging prophetess, gave us a Christmas gift, and that is um, another failed prophecy. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what the failed prophecy is. Let's just say that uh, she seems to have Trump on the brain. And so <laughs> it, she made a prophecy. She claimed that the uh, video was recorded the day before Christmas, so on the 24th. And uh, we're going to note that in the intro of this particular video, which she released on the 25th of December, on Christmas Day, that uh, she claims that God gave her a book and that she's you know written a book because the Holy Spirit told her to read it. And there's like patently obvious proof that she ain't no prophetess. And uh, this is a woman who clearly needs like, you know, to be men- mentally institutionalized, something to that effect. So... Uh, all right, so we'll be checking in with Vonda Brewer and uh, her failed um, uh, <laughs> Christmas Day Trump prophecy, and uh, and you're thinking, well, what did she say? Well, wait till you hear what she says, and you'll you'll sit there and go, yeah, she got that one wrong, no problem. Uh, so we're going to be checking in with her. Um, we're going to be checking in with John Gray. Now, just so you know, John Gray is not long for Lakewood. Uh, he is a teacher there at Lakewood Church. So we'll be using the Shiny Teeth update music for John Gray because he's currently on staff at Joel Osteen's church. And we're going to listen to a portion of his uh, New Year's message titled The Speed of Purpose. Speed of Purpose. <laughs> it's like I don't normally think of purpose in terms of speed, you know. So uh, we'll be listening to a portion of that message today and uh, we'll also be checking in with the Sid Roth program and listen as he is uh, in interviewing Hakeem and Naeem Collins on how to destroy breakthrough blockages so I mean if you are experiencing breakthrough blockages in your life th- this is going to be some practical stuff for you um, on this episode of fighting for the faith and then uh, to round out the first hour we're going to be checking in with Perry Stone and I'm just going to be asking the question, uh, has Perry Stone run out of material? Yeah, that's the question. Has Perry Stone run out of material? Because um, the this topic of this installment of Manifest is uh, the, uh, the main key to answered prayer. So, I mean, if you were to just kind of work through your memory banks and, you know, and as you think about the Bible and, and you've meditated on it and read through it and stuff like that, can you all remember, you know, just right off the top of your head, those uh, that passage that reveals the main key to answered prayer, the, the main key 
answered prayer. Because uh, what we're going to be hearing from Perry Stone literally sounds like he's just stalling for time. And uh, it painful, painful is is the best way I can put it. And then in uh, hour number two, uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon deliver, a good sermon, ending the week off with a good sermon. That's right, we're back on our normal uh, broadcasting schedule. We'll be checking in with uh, Phil Johnson. The name of the sermon is Against Gimmickry, Against Gimmickry. He's going to be uh, exegeting 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And uh, so that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I hope you're sitting down. Make yourself comfortable. Since we're going to begin with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, and uh, and Vonda Brewer, the nagging prophetess, (laughs) will be the first that we're going to be listening to in this. Let's do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are, a-standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich there stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Roly bowly ball, roly bowly ball, singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, so I can't believe I have not gotten to this sooner, but uh, Vonda Brewer, the nagging prophetess, uh, who claims, if you remember, uh, you're thinking, who's Vonda Brewer? She was the gal who claimed that Trump uh, would not become the president of the United States. Uh, She was the dump Trump prophecy gal, and uh, on December 25th of this year, she dropped this video on YouTube, snagged a copy of it. Just in case she decided to, to uh, be foolish and you know, claim that she didn't say these words. But uh, we're going to listen to the intro itself of this uh, Von de Brewer Christmas Day prophecy to note the irony here. And then we'll let her explain what it is that God showed her was going to be happening on Christmas Day 2017. Which if you can read a calendar, you'll note that that's in the past, not in the future. Here's Vonda. Here we go. Everyone, Vonda here. You're watching God News, and it is good to be with you. I do have some God news for you, um, but just wait one second because I want to say Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year to you guys. In case and by the way, the uh, the bottom part, the scroll on the bottom says that this was recorded on December 24th, 2017. She's saying Merry Christmas because that's when this went up. See you again, and I want to welcome all the new subscribers. And um, for the new subscribers, I want to let you know she has almost six thousand subscribers, and this is a woman who is demonstrably a false prophetess. Um, I often get words from the Lord through dreams or visions. And for those of you that don't understand how to interpret your dreams, the Holy Spirit led me to write a book for you guys. And- all right, so she's going to start off with a product. <laughs> She's trying to move product here. The uh, name of her book is Dream Quest. 
dream interpretation, eight easy steps. And she says the Holy Spirit inspired her and gave her this book to write. All right. So you're going to know she's trying to sell this product, Dream Quest. And uh, she's about to make a prophecy claiming to have come from God, the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm so glad I wrote it down because um, <laughs> it's just it's really, really a good book. And uh, you can get it on Amazon.com or Vonda.tv. For those of you that um, have forgotten, I have changed my website from my whole name just to Vonda.tv. I thought it would be a little bit easier. So it's Dream Quest, Dream Interpretation, Eight Easy Steps. So you can get that. All right. It's also available on Kindle. Uh, there's a Spanish version, Biscando Suenesos, although none of no comprendo. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, Vonda. Yeah. Spanish version sold last year, but um, Lord willing, that will change. And um, so, yes, I have a word for you. And- All right. So remember, God, the Holy Spirit inspired her to write Dream Quest, and she claims to have a word from God, the Holy Spirit for us. This, again, was published on Christmas Day 2017. Um, it's from the Holy Spirit, and he gave this word to me about two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Okay, all right. And um, it's about Donald Trump. Many of you know. And she has Trump on the brain. Been following along this soap opera, this Donald Trump reality TV show, this daily uh, saga that we live in. Um, and you know from over two years ago, if the new subscribers don't know, over two years ago, and I'm going to play those clips for you later. Um, the Holy Spirit started speaking to me about Donald Trump and that he would throw away the presidency or the presidency or he would be a throwaway. Somehow I saw the presidency in the trash can. And um, Yeah, you're changing the prophecy. You said that you saw there was a group of people uh, that were Republicans who were shouting dump Trump and they were going to make Jeb Bush the Republican candidate. You're fudging here, Vonda. So... October 6, 2015, all the way now into December of 2017. We're getting ready to go into the year of 2018. So the Lord has strung me along. Many dates in the past he's given me. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's fault. God is stringing her along. That's why she hasn't been able to successfully prophesy anything regarding Trump. He even gave me dates about what was going to happen and... Um, you can, I share the uh, mishap dates from September. You can go down and look on the link below, and um, I'll share more about that on that video and make amends there. But uh, today I want to talk about this new word that God gave me. Um, so he's been stringing me along for two years, many times. Yeah, God the Holy Spirit, he, he does that to, you know, prophets and prophetesses. He just strings them along, gives them misinformation all the time, you know. In the past, um, even to when I would marry, God gave me uh, great time frames. But for this particular prophecy, uh, God was just not giving up the goods. I mean, the main grand finale of actually the day that he would leave until just recently, a couple of weeks ago. All right. So two weeks ago, God, the Holy Spirit, told Vonda when Donald Trump would leave office. All right, now let's uh, take a look at a important text, Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is one of the texts that gives us the biblical definition of a true prophet and a false prophet. 
Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 18, we'll start at verse 15 for our context. Remember, three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. Here's what it says. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see the great fire any more lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. You're going to note that in properly understanding what Scripture reveals regarding a true prophet and a false prophet, that there is an explicit prophecy regarding Jesus Christ, and whoever will not listen to him will be held accountable by God, which then immediately creates the question, well, then how do we know when somebody hasn't heard from God? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So false prophets are going to come up claiming to be the one who Moses prophesied about, and they're false prophets, and the punishment for a false prophet in the ancient theocracy of Israel, it was a capital crime. It was a death penalty um law. So, and if you say in your heart, well, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? All right, so how do you know a word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word a word that Yahweh has not spoken The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, bring him up on charges. And uh, in ancient Israel, they would have been stoned to death. So that's how you know a word that the Lord has not spoken. The biblical standard hasn't changed. When somebody says, thus saith the Lord, this and such is going to happen on such and such a date, and it doesn't take place, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. That is a false prophet. Clear definition of a false prophet. Vonda meets this definition in spades and continues to meet this definition. Listen more to this Christmas Day prophecy. So, uh, with no more further ado, I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit showed me that Donald Trump will resign. He will. On Christmas Day of 2017. Uh Last time I checked, um, Christmas Day 2017, there was no announcement from Donald Trump of his resignation. In fact, he seems to be quite busy as President of the United States all the way here at the end of the first week of January 2018, and uh, he hasn't resigned. Nope. Now, yeah, I'll say it again. Donald Trump will resign Christmas Day on 2017. Now, I'm recording this before Christmas, but I'm going to release it on Christmas Day. And um, you can look at the upload time and the publish time and see that it was published and uploaded on YouTube before uh, Christmas Day. Yeah, I can see that. Um, (laughs) 
that's not helping you because Donald Trump is still around January 5th, 2018, you know? Oh, um, anyway, he will resign, but you guys don't feel too bad. Donald is not leaving empty-handed. Right, I, 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 I refuse to feel bad for Donald right now that he's, you know, that he left. He resigned on uh, Christmas Day, yeah. Remember, um, Inauguration Day, not long after that, I shared a prophecy that the Holy Spirit gave me about Donald Trump. And God showed me that Donald Trump was offered mega money yeah. before he was, um, you know, inaugurated. And a whole year went by. Well, not even a whole year because that would be... January the 20th, 2018, but most of the years gone by, and the story just broke about two weeks ago that Donald Trump was offered $800 million to leave um, the presidency primaries um, and give the ticket to Mike Pence, and um, he did take the deal at that time, but he didn't leave at that time, so now that he's going to leave on Christmas Day... Well, actually, he's already got the money last week. God showed me him getting the money and him being good to go. So mm-hmm. God showed you this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a wee bit on the embarrassing side because, you know, Donald Trump, he's still in office and um, he's. Um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't play this sooner, you know, <laughs> it's busy season, you know, uh, with the holidays and getting up pirate productions and stuff. So um, there you go. All right, uh, moving along, we're going to head down to Lakewood, and uh, we're going to do a John Gray update. He works for Joel Osteen, so let's do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. Shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. Shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. Shiny teeth that glisten just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Shiny teeth and me. All right, so we're heading over to uh, Lakewood, and we're going to listen to John Gray and uh, the first portion of his message that he delivered uh, the first part of January, just a few days ago. And the name of it is the the, the speed of purpose. I don't know what that means. No clue what that means. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll figure it out along the way. Here's uh, John Gray. Here we go. Happy first Wednesday of the new year. Happy new year. Y'all had a good time. Did you enjoy your, your new year's weekend? Everybody all right? Did you eat well? Anybody been going to the gym? Uh, Lord bless you. I'm not called to that. I, I knew I wasn't going in 2017, so I didn't even lie. I said, Lord, just help me. I'm going to try a little bit. So... I ate some vegetables today, so I feel like the Holy Ghost is on my vegetables. Uh, When you're finished uh, giving, and I believe there's no better way to start off the year than by letting the Lord know that he is still very much at the center of your heart as it pertains to your finances. When that's done...
Yeah, yeah. You can show the Lord that he's at the center of your heart regarding finances by writing a big check to Lakewood Church, uh, care of John Gray. Would yeah. you do me a favor and stand up? I want you to stand up. All right. Here's what- do, do I have to stand? I don't want to stand up. I really, I don't like it. These gimmicks are silly. What I want you to do, I want you to switch places with somebody right now. Switch seats, right? There's nobody for me to switch places with in the pirate cave at the moment. (sighs) Now, on the count of three. One, two, three. Switch. (laughs) That's how fast God is about to shift. Somebody else was sitting there, and in one moment, they're going to have to get up because it wasn't theirs to keep. The people at Lakewood are going bananas. Crazy go nuts. And what he's just said is just ridiculous. Nonsense. It's a gimmick. It's nonsense. There's a shifting coming on, you know, because he had them shift seats. Mm Mm-hmm. They were just there until you showed up. Right, yeah. <laughs> they were just there until I showed up. What a bunch of nonsense. Where does God promise anything like this? I can't think of a text. 2018 is the year you show up. And God shows up. So it's the year I'm going to show up. I mean, I've been in 2018 the whole time 2018's been around. <laughs> I showed up as... You know, as soon as 2018 arrived, I was there, you know. So now that you're in your rightful place, can you give him a crazy praise? Right. I'll give him a crazy praise because I showed up for 2018. You're breathing. You showed up for 2018. That's not a crazy praise. That's a regular praise. Yeah, get your crazy on, man, you know. Hey! I feel the Holy Ghost now. No, you really don't. I don't know what you're feeling, but that ain't the Holy Ghost. It It may be gas. Switch back. Switch back. But at any moment in the next 27 minutes, you may have to shift. Tell somebody shift. Yeah, you know, the shifting thingy, because he said so. What's up to our Lakewood youth? I see the youth over here. Pastor Trevor, Jamal. Let's thank God for our young people who are in service tonight. While you're standing, let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, bless this word and, and, and be with us and speak through us. And allow this moment to get us closer to you, Lord Jesus, by the time it's over than we were when it first began. We love you, we honor you, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Very grateful to be here. I haven't had a chance to to do this, but I get to acknowledge my mother, who is here, 75 years young, from Cincinnati, who raised me. And... Whatever I am is because she raised me. And when my father left her and me 
She didn't let that stop her from raising me to know the Lord. Anything virtuous and good that I've produced is a direct result of her prayers, her intercession, her example, and her influence. I want to give you your flowers while you're alive. You're a miracle. The devil tried to kill you twice from two kinds of cancer. He failed. May 2018 bring you more miracles, signs, and wonders. May God answer all your prayers, your secret prayers, and things you wrote in your journal 10 years ago. May they come to pass in the next 12 months. May the Holy Ghost show up in your life. In the name of Jesus. Somebody give God praise. Um, You want me to praise God for a heretic who twists God's word and blames nonsense and engages in gimmickry in the name of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, no. Matthew chapter 3. I feel like preaching. You're probably going to fail. We're gonna, I'm going to be here all five Wednesdays. Bring everybody you know. All, every Wednesday. I'm going to just be in here. I'm going to just be in here like this. Bring 14 people. We need to get this year off right. By the way, before the year is up, he's going to be uh, replacing Ron Carpenter at Ron Carpenter's church sometime this year. Yes. <clears throat> We're going to pause right there. We're going to come back to that, to this, because, you know, it's uh, oh so interesting. Uh, it's quite the mess, though. But uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at... Pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to hear more from John Gray. We're going to hear from Sid Roth. Yeah, all kinds of mayhem up in here. Stay tuned. I don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. a large non-fat decaf mocha with no whipped cream two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for Tiffany oh actually it's just Tiff oh uh, sorry uh, Tiff then like thank you so much I've never made a drink quite like this before I can't even imagine what you call it my friends call it like the why bother but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it <laughs> Nice talking with you. Adios. 
sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street. It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. So Jeff said, wrecked him. Wrecked him. You practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right. Use that. A little bit there. And uh, there. That seems to have gotten most, most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. Oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my second wife father all over you. Why does this keep happening? Please take my card. As I was saying, I don't even think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So... First of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, And then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven. But instead, these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you? You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, well, a lot of people are engaging all kinds of weird gimmickry. Not actually preaching the word, claiming to hear from God, you know, stuff like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. There are four ranks to choose from, and your rank is based upon your commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code Code 58208. Also, there's a third, I forgot about this. It's going to take me a while to get used to this. It's a third yellow button, by the way, and it says uh, become a patron. We, uh, You can now support us via Patreon if that's something that you're familiar with. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash pirate Christian, by the way. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's head back to Lakewood. We were listening to John Gray wax ridiculous. And uh, he's got the people there at Lakewood all kind of whipped up into friends. He says he's going to do some preaching. He wants to, he feels he needs to. And he said something about Matthew 3. Let's see what he does. Because what God has for you is so crazy. Does anybody else feel that anticipation? I know you feel it, sir. You feel it. Somebody like, I, I sort of feel it. I'm not sure if it's gas, but... Just in case it's the Holy Spirit, I'll lift my hand. Yeah, it could be gas, though. Yeah, it probably is gas. You need to get excited. You need to have that joy, that like that that crazy joy. That that you got to get that crazy joy. If you don't have that, then what what are you thinking? Jesus, joy. Yeah, that yeehaw, that kind of. I love that our church has so many different cultures and methods of expression. It's a beautiful tapestry of what I believe God wants to do. I'm very excited about 2018. I'm not sad to see 2017 go. Bye. Bye. I'm not sad. I don't miss you. Nothing. Don't text me. Don't call. 
2017. I'm ready for 2018. I'm ready for what God wants to do. Um, for those who uh, will be here this weekend, starting this weekend, our pastor is going to be giving his book away. One per family. Every single family will get I Declare. And let's praise God. Free book. Just walk in. <laughs> not a free Bible, a free copy of I Declare, which is not a biblical teaching. Uh-huh. Get a book. Value. I walk in three times. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that whole free book thing. Gimmick there at uh, <clears throat> Lakewood. Sell them. Stop it, John. Don't do that. <laughs> Sign book. But um, our pastor is setting vision for the year. So if you. He is, yeah. That's a new thing. I've never heard of any pastors in the previous millennia doing such things. Setting vision for the year. Uh huh. We're going to bring someone. This is a great weekend to start. Every family gets that book. So I wanted to put that in your ear. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I just need to start. Uh, this message by saying somebody's waiting on you. Matthew chapter three and somebody's waiting on me. You know, I happen to know what Matthew chapter three is about, and I'm pretty sure it's not about anybody waiting on me. Um, yeah. Matthew chapter three, it, the, the whole ch- chapter is about uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. Let me read it out. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, for this is he of who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That is the totality of Matthew chapter 3, and I assure you, you're not in it, and this is not a text about anybody waiting on you. And they've been talking about you in a good way. I need you to know that conversations are being had, and, 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 and people are trying to figure out what to do, and they don't know what to do until you show up. I'm prophesying into the air 
you're speaking empty words into the air. That's not prophecy. That's just speaking empty and totally useless words. That you have been living your life, minding your business, serving God, doing the best you can. You've been succeeding. You've been messing up. Then you got back up and succeeded again. Then you prayed and then you fasted and then you... What does this have to do with Matthew 3 again? You sure are good at scratching itching ears there. And then you messed up, but you got back up again. And then you figured it out. And then you started worshiping God and you got stronger. And then you showed a little weakness, but God showed you that you got strength over that. And so you kept coming, stayed faithful. See, here's the thing about faithful. Faithful doesn't mean perfect. Faithful just means you get up and keep going. Is there anybody in here who's been faithful? Not perfect, but faithful. Can we give God praise? Because he's faithful. Yeah, yeah, again, he's just really good at whipping them up into a frenzy. They're hooping and hollering over nothing. I just want to talk to faithful people, not perfect. If you're perfect... This message is not for you, but for those of us who have blown it, but God still chose us, this message is for us. Because 2018 is the year for the faithful. You've been sowing, you've been serving, you've been searching, you've been you've been laying low. God's about to just elevate you like, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which text says that God's about to elevate me in 2018? Uh, that ain't Matthew 3, I assure you of that. And I love it because there are conversations that are being had and they don't even know that you're the solution until you show up. Mm -hmm. Apparently I'm the Messiah. I'm the solution. And now that I'm here, (laughs) you know, uh Oh, hallelujah. Things are happening fast, faster than they have at any other point in time. I hope that you hear me and I hope that you lean in. As a matter of fact, some of y'all look. You got to lean in for this one. Okay. A too casual. I need you to lean in. Lean just kind of lean. Just, yeah, just, just lean in, you know, yeah. Lean in a little bit. Sit up and hear this word. If you're at home, sit up. Tell the kids to be quiet. <laughs> Your life is about to move at a rapid speed. Because uh, uh, of Matthew 3? Are you sure? You, you notice he's just filling their ears with utter nonsense. All right, we're we're going to switch gears. You're making an executive decision. We're going to hang off on the Sid Roth uh, one for a later day, and we're going to do um, our Perry Stone update because he engages in some interesting gimmickry in uh, this segment that we're going to be listening to. But let's set this up and do this right. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is so loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I, I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south? Than it is in the summer. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head of my shoulder is sour loose. And I ain't got since God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy. I'm a nut. All right, I hope you're sitting down. This one is going to be a wee bit frustrating. We're heading over to the, the Manifest program. And I got to ask the question, is uh, Perry Stone running out of material. 
because uh, he's going to be engaging in some very bizarre gimmickry in this installment of the Manifest television program. And he's going to be broadcasting like he's want to do uh, from Israel. I think this time you can see Bethlehem in the background. And what's really funny, while he's talking, uh, there's a local lady who's uh, gathering up nuts or berries or something off the bushes off the hill right behind him. But watch what he does here. I mean, this is an interesting technique to kind of design to kind of grab your attention and keep you listening. But it's the in-between stuff that makes you wonder, has he run out of material? Let's let's listen in as uh, Perry Stone engages in some manipulation and some gimmickry. Here we go. We want to welcome you to Manifest. I'm coming to you from Israel. If you were with me right now on this hill I'm standing on, it is between the city of Bethlehem, which is behind me, and the city of Jerusalem, which is in front of me. What a beautiful day. It's rained a little bit this morning, and usually when it rains and the wind blows, and you will hear some wind blowing on my microphone today where we're standing, it just clears up this area. It is incredible. Just to kind of get the imagery of where we're at, Bethlehem is directly behind me. The Dead Sea is over in this direction. The mountains of Edom and Moab, it's a clear day today. You can see those. That's the country of Jordan. But I have a word for you today that I want to share with you that's very significant. And I'm going to need significant word that he needs to share with us. Divided attention for about the next 20 to 21 minutes. So just don't don't listen to me. I mean, I, I can totally derail you from this word, you know. I'm going to be dealing with you what I believe is the biggest key to getting your prayers answered. Uh-huh. So something I have to do. Uh, there's a key that I need to turn in order for me to get my prayers answered. Yeah, so the main key to answer prayer. Now, just work through the archives in your brain a little bit. See, it's, can you kind of pull this up? And what do you think the biblical answer is to this? I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, you know. And you're going to say it's faith. Well, you have to have faith, but it's not faith. Got to have faith, faith, faith. Yeah. Well, it's just making sure you pray consistently. That's true, but that's not what it is. That's not the key. No, no, no. Well, it's praying and uh, not wavering. That's true. When you pray, you have to believe and not waver. But that's not the key. Uh, yeah, right. So that's not the key. So what's the key, Perry? What did you tell us? As a matter of fact, when you ask people what is the number one thing that you have to have that gets your most uh, important, significant, effective prayers answered, no one that you talk to, uh, I say no one, there may be one out of 10 or one out of 20, but almost no one can tell you what it is. Right, nobody can tell you. Because apparently this isn't even based on a biblical text, but he knows the key. And you're sitting there going, man... What do I need to do in order to figure this key out? Because, you know, I want my prayers answered, and I, I want more of them answered, you know, my way. So what's the key? Tell me. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Please, Perry, i got to know the secret. What's the key? What's the key? What's the key? For you to understand answered prayer and for you to understand the significance of answered prayer, let's talk about, just for a few moments, about the tabernacle of Moses and the... T- <laughs> so, okay, so he's wet your appetite. He's kind of held the... You know, the bait out in front of you. I don't know what the key is, but he's not telling you the key. Now, now we're going to go a while before he hangs the uh, the bait out in front of us again. A little bit of a long road to hoe, but it's the in-between time. Listen carefully to what he's going to say. I think he's putting in a bunch of filler here. I don't think he knows what I, – I think he's running out of material, you know. Well, in Jerusalem, the tabernacle of Moses and the temple in Jerusalem both had what was called a priesthood. 
There was one high priest who was appointed for life, and when he died, his oldest son would take his place. So the priesthood of the Old Testament is what we call hereditary. Now, the first king and priest under God in the Bible is Genesis 14, Melchizedek. That was not his name, that was his title, but he's called the first king and priest of the Most High God. However, the priesthood was originated through the sons of Levi and through Aaron, who was, uh, of course, a relative to Moses. And uh, the Levites became the priest of both the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, there were two temples in Jerusalem, one the Temple of Solomon, and other, the other one was called the Second Temple, which was uh, added on to uh, by Herod the Great. And so the priesthood was significant because of the garments that they wore. Now, the high priest had two specific garments. One was called his garments of beauty. It's mentioned in the book of Exodus, and uh, I won't go through all of those. What does this have to do with the key to answered prayer? <laughs> he's, he's, he even has a diagram of like the, uh, uh, you know, the high priest in his garments of beauty. You know, he had the gold mitre, the gold crown that said, holy unto the Lord upon his head. He had a bonnet that he wore. He had uh, an ephod that he wore. He had garments, specific garments of different colors that he wore. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now, the what we call the regular Levites were individuals who basically wore uh, linen garments, and they were four types of garments. There were linen pants. There was a linen robe. There was a linen sack. Why are we going into the Levitical closet here to look at their clothes? I mean, how, what does this have to do with the key to you know, answered prayer? I mean, I got stuff I want, you know, I... <laughs> And then they wore a linen headdress. Now, today, uh, among the Arab people or the Bedouin people, you will see a headdress that's a covering. And they, it looks like a little rope. They tie it around their head to hold it in place. Well, the priest had something very similar to this. And one of the reasons for it was as they ministered making sacrifices, you didn't want hair to mix in with the blood, nor did you want sweat to mix in with the animal sacrifice. So a lot of times the headdress protected that from taking. This is totally like filler, you know. It's just answer the question. What's the main key to answer prayer? Place. So the, the normal Levites wore four linen garments on a consistent basis. And when they would become covered with blood, they would exchange those garments for new garments. But the high priest had uh, garments of royalty and beauty. But one time a year, the priests were to take off the eight garments of beauty and he was to put on four of the linen garments and that was on the day of atonement and this is when he would go into the holy of holies to make atonement for himself for the levites and for the israelites now as a part of this in fact let me read this verse to you and we're going to take this verse and we're going to expound on it and this is when david went down to Ziglag, and when Ziglag was invaded by the Amalekites, and the Amalekites came in and took the wives, the children, the spoil, and burnt the city, and the, everyone was so depressed, the men thought about killing David and stoning him. Yeah, I, I taught on this text over the summer, yeah. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, and he received this word from God to go pursue, overtake, and recover all. But the word came through something which was called inquiring of the Lord through the ephod. Through the ephod. Now watch this. David was great. This is like pseudo-profundity. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, right, the ephod is mentioned there in 1 Samuel chapter 30. I mean, again, what does this have to do with the main key to answered prayer? which is the big setup that you're, you know, the, the big bait that you're trying to keep our attention with. 
and you know you going on and giving a history lesson regarding the Levitical priesthood and their different types of garments and stuff, and then finding a verse in First Samuel where you know when the ephod is mentioned, and the you know this, what does this have to do with anything? Again, I think he's running out of material. Stressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, and David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought hither the ephod to David. And David quired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now the ephod, and it's in the English Bible, it's spelled E-P-H-O-D. It's mentioned 52 times in the... You're going to spell it for us. Well, that, that, I saw it on the screen. It was... <laughs> I could read, you know. Testament. And it was a part of the garment of the priest. Now, let's follow... you got to follow me through to this as I get to this real significant part of what is the one thing... Okay, here we go again. He's going to try to re-grab your attention because what he just gave us was... Not an answer to the question, what is the main thing, which is the key to answered prayers. Not giving us a direct answer, but we continue. That makes your prayers most effective. And what is the one thing that in my lifetime, in my father's lifetime, who was the greatest praying man that I ever met, he could get prayers answered swiftly, and this was his key. He could do it. There's a key. You know, if you want your prayers answered swiftly, you, you got to know the key. His father knew it. Yeah, it's a family secret, I think. Now, again, if I were to ask you, you would say it has to be faith. It has to be quoting the word. It has to be praying without wavering. All of those things are true, but that was not the key that I saw during his entire ministry where 16 people were healed of cancer just after he retired from ministry, traveling with me in revivals and traveling on his own. What was my dad's key to answered prayer? I'll tell you about that in a moment because that's what I want to teach you today. And he keeps stringing you along. Ah. Guess we're going to have to hoe through some more rough ground here. What are you going to do next? Work out the trigonomic dimensions of the uh, <laughs> of the ephod compared to the pinnacle of the temple? What are you going to do now? On the manifest telecast. Now, take a look at this because this is very important. On the Old Testament high priest, there was something called the breastplate. And the breastplate was woven with different types of, uh, of uh, there, was, there was the purple, there was the scarlet, there was the blue, and it was woven together. And then there were 12 beautiful, semi-precious gemstones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of those gemstones were carved with the name of the tribe, whether it be Benjamin or Judah, Asher, Issachar, Nephtali, whatever. And there were three, uh, uh, the top section of the breastplate had three stones, and then the next row was three, three and three, a total of 12. Now, there was something called inquiring of the Lord that existed back in the time of the tabernacle and back in the time of the temple. One of the ways you inquired of the Lord was called casting lots. Now, the best example for me to give you of what casting lots was is on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would have the two goats, one marked for Azazel, one marked for the Lord, standing in front of him. Yeah, we're, we're not getting any closer to that, that magic secret family key to getting answered prayer, are we? Yeah, again, he's just stringing us along. This is a gimmick. 
was a box that was about this size of this Bible. And he would pray and, and uh, lift his head to heaven and reach in and he would have what was called a lottery. It was made of wood with brass on the top. Another one was made of wood with brass on the top. Two of them. And one was for Azazel. The other was for the Lord. Now Azazel was believed to have been, there's several traditions about the name Azazel, but it represented Satan. So Azazel was the scapegoat. That was the goat the priest laid his hands on. And when the priest laid his hands upon that scapegoat, then that goat was turned loose into the wilderness where it died. And then we discover also that the goat for the Lord was offered on the altar. Now, when the priest wanted to inquire of the Lord, one of the ways of inquiring was casting lots. That was just one of several methods that could be used called casting lots. Another way of inquiring of the Lord was when the priest would take the breastplate on the royal garments and stand in front of the seven-branched menorah. And as he would stand there, he would pray a prayer and the light from the menorah would light up on those certain stones and give him a word from God. Like if, like if they were going to war, they would say, who should go to war? Who should lead us? And the stone of Judah may light up. And this is how he knew a word from God was through that method. Uh, there were other methods that were used in the Old Testament to hear from God. And one of those was called the ifah. Now, here's where it gets in. Uh, will you just tell us what the key is to getting answered prayer? And by the way, the whole thing is absurd on its face. Uh-huh. It's, it's as if somehow you getting an answered prayer is dependent upon you, first of all, cracking some code and learning what the secret key is and then you turning it and then, hey, you could just get all kinds of results. That's not how prayer works. On the garment of the high priest, you had two onyx stones upon his shoulders. They were they're traditionally a, a dark black stone, a very beautiful polished stone. Yeah, I think he's running out of material. And over here on one side of his shoulder was... It's like winging it, you know. For us, the six tribes of Israel, six names. And over here on the other side were six names. So we had six and six. Now, it was connected by a chain that was connected to the breastplate. Now, what would happen is this. The ephod, and, and you got you got to follow me with this because this is important. Okay, I'm following. There are two stones with the 12 tribes on his shoulders. And why were there 12 stones uh, right over here over his chest? And here's the answer. The high priest was to carry Israel over his heart, meaning that the children of Israel all the time were over his heart represented by their names on the 12. Would you just get to what the key is? To my precious gemstones. Then you had uh, the six and six on the shoulder. Now watch this. Meaning oh, I'm watching. I'm watching. The high priest had to carry the burden of Israel on his shoulders. Right, yeah, that burden thingy on his shoulders, right, yeah. There were two parts to this. Number one, they were in his heart, and number two, they were on his shoulders. Now, I can stop right there and begin to tell you that they, when, when they inquired of the Lord, they used the ephod, which was a part of the breastplate, to get a word from God to determine what they should do. And here's the point. In emergency situations, in emergency situations, they would take and inquire of the Lord using the ephod, and they would receive very quick answers to God. This right, because they would dial the 911 on the ephod thingy. <sighs> He's, he, he's, running, he's scraping the bottom of the barrel here, yeah. It's exactly what David did when he was at Ziglag, and the invasion took place, and he didn't know where the people had went. He didn't know where the wives and the children had been taken. No clue, yeah. He didn't even know where the Amalekites, where they had gone. And so he had to inquire of God, and God said, pursue, overtake, and recover all after he inquired of the ephod. Now here That's right, because he dialed 911 on the ephod. ...is the story of the ephod as it relates to you and I. Okay, so all of that to finally get to this.
The ephod, a part of it was emergency intercession. Now, <laughs> which is why it was uh, <clears throat> colored safety orange and yellow. They used it during emergencies because this is not the only verse in the Bible where we can find it talks about the ephod. As I told you, it's mentioned about 50. Uh, let, me, let me give you the exact number. Uh, it's mentioned 52 times in the Old Testament. So you need to understand this, that it was a part of getting a quick answer to prayer. <laughs> yeah, uh, although we're not getting a quick answer to the what is the main key to getting your prayers answered. There are times that you and I can pray prayers, and we can afford, and I don't mean financially, we can afford in time, for that prayer not to be answered for maybe two, three months, six months, or a year. Praise God, God's going to answer it, no worry. So we pray it, and we lay back knowing one of these days it's going to happen. What do you do, however, if your baby or your child or your son or daughter is in a car accident and has been rushed to the emergency room, and the doctor tells you that they may not have long to live? What do you do, for example? You pray. That's what you do. You pray. Do you think that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the almighty, who who the psalmist describes our prayers as rising before him as incense and the lifting up of our hands as the evening sacrifice. This is the God who, who a sparrow can't even die without his knowledge of it. Do you think for a second that there's, you know, that I've got to do something special to get God's attention if I have a child who's having an emergency? That's absurd. Doctor tells you that you have cancer and you only have two to three months to live. What do you do, for example, if you've lost your job and the bills are coming due and you've got to have a miracle? Well, the way you have to pray is very significant, and I'm going to share. Really, you have to pray differently. No, you pray. Nowhere in Scripture does it say pray this way. Unless, oh man, you got no time, then you got to pray that way. And by the way, your interpretation of the ephod as the nine one one emergency call to God, yeah, that's a that that was eisegesis. You stuck that into the text. No text actually says that. Pray this way unless there's an emergency. Then go with that. You made that up. If you right now, listen carefully. I'm listening. In my dad's ministry, when all right, so finally we're gonna get to the key. Are you ready? Father would pray with this one word. Okay, so this is a word. This is the key. It's the one word. Okay. He got the fastest answers and the greatest results of anything. Now, number one, and this is not the word, but let's just lay the foundation here. When you read the New Testament, when miracles happened in the ministry of Jesus, it says he was moved with compassion. Now, yeah, he he, he was rent, his splagnizomai were wrenched. Yeah, sympathy is human, but compassion has a divine element to it. For example, I can see someone in a bad situation and sympathize with them, but what compassion does? Compassion moves you to help that person. Where in the scripture does it say if I have compassion, that will cause God to answer my prayers speedily? Example, if you were to see children that need food and you knew it was a real situation, sympathy would make you feel sorry for the child, but compassion would move you to send money or food to help the child. So when Jesus is moved with compassion, he is moved with the desire and the uh, and the ability to help that person now in a very bad situation. So I noticed in my dad's healing ministry that the greatest miracles he ever received when he prayed was when he felt a heart go out, his heart. Okay, you got that? The heart. Remember the breath? So if, uh, if, what if you're heartless? <laughs> you, 
you know, I'm a pirate, you know. Um, <laughs> so I have to feel my heart go out, and then that's the key to <sighs> getting answer, prayer answered quickly. This, I'm, this is absurd. By the priest, he carries the people on his heart. When, the, when my dad's heart would go out to the people that he needed to minister to, that's when he would receive a great uh, healing miracles or testimonies of his prayers being answered. But this is important. Here's the word. Get, get ready. I'm ready. It's real simple. It's called. Okay, I'm ready. Word burden. B u r d e n. You read it. So I gotta. I gotta have a burden. Mm-hmm. Which biblical text says that if I have a burden, that that my prayer answers will be accelerated? No text says this. Yeah, I hate to say it, Perry Stone. It's like he's running out of material, and he's just making stuff up now. Uh huh. Yeah. So yo. There it is, folks. I mean, does your uh, do do your prayers have enough burden uh, in them? Because if they do, you know, if you have enough burden, then God will answer your prayers a lot quicker. You know, lots and lots of time quicker. You know, it'd be much more effective. So you you gotta you gotta use the word burden, and uh, and you'll get better results. Yeah, I wish I was making that up, but the reality is is that he was making that up. No text in the Bible says that. Total gimmick. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon by Phil Johnson on, of all things... Uh, gimmickry. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. 
right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon. We're going to end off with a good sermon. can't believe we're getting back to our normal routine here. Let's do this right, though. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, bum. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's good sermon is uh, preached by none other than my good friend Phil Johnson. He's going to be working through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The name of the sermon, Against Gimmickry. thought it worked rather well with our theme today. And uh, I think after listening to it, you're going to go, yeah, I get, wow, I had no idea that the Bible actually spoke against such things. The reality is that it does. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Phil Johnson. Paul's words about how he preaches, how he ministered. This is about ministry philosophy, but it's also about the approach we should take when we give the gospel to anyone. And so if you'll turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, but I'm going to start with verse 2. In verse 2, Paul makes a very potent one-sentence manifesto that defines how biblical preaching and evangelism should be done. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And I want to consider that text and its immediate context this morning. And I hope you realize There is a lot of really bad advice being offered to pastors and church leaders today. Preachers are constantly told that they need to spice up their preaching. You know, you can't just explain the Scriptures and expect people to obey. You have to add gimmicks and attention-getters to your message. And we actually have preachers today who are so desperate to grab attention or impress young people that they they go out of the way to do foolish things. There's a famous video online of the pastor who tried to ride a big Harley Davidson in. That's how he made his entrance, and he crashed it on the stage. And uh, there are preachers today, this is apparently a common thing, who make their entrance on a zip line. Seriously, look it up on YouTube. It's not just one guy. This is apparently a thing. It's like the latest way to get to the pulpit. You do it on a zip line. When they did the revamping in here. I tried to talk them into... (laughs) But another popular myth about biblical preaching is that you need to be deliberately subtle in how you sneak the scriptural content into your sermons. If you put both of those philosophies together, you know, you have to have the gimmicks, but you have to be subtle about the Bible. What you might conclude 
is you need to be as delicate as possible when you're telling people what the Bible says, but you also have to be brash and in your face with your own sort of clever gimmickry. And so the biblical message is being subjugated to human cunning, and that is exactly the opposite of what the apostle calls for here in our text. More than 20 years ago now, Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Church, his manual on church leadership philosophy, and he said this, quote, you cannot start with a biblical text expecting the unchurched to be fascinated by it. You must first capture their attention. And today that approach is regarded as received wisdom. Preachers who who tiptoe around the hard truth in a biblical text are so common that you can hear them, and we hardly notice what they're doing. It's just We've become accustomed to it. And in fact, the average, a typical evangelical is surprised when you take a more direct approach with the Bible. Or worse, Christians are sometimes the first ones who act offended when someone refuses to apologize or tone down the Bible's political incorrectness. And the Bible has a lot to say that is politically incorrect by today's standards. And in fact, in the larger districts of the evangelical movement, the pressure to put a muzzle on the Bible is getting even more extreme. For four years now, Andy Stanley, who pastors one of the biggest churches in America, he has been telling young preachers that they need to stop saying the Bible says, because, and these are his words, quote, for many adults, the Bible says is not an adequate place to start your faith. He says the phrase, the Bible says, implies that our faith is grounded in the Scriptures. (laughs) But, Andy Stanley says, the foundation of our faith is an event, not a book. Now, that's an artificial distinction because the only thing we know about that event comes from the book. And so he's making a pious-sounding artificial distinction whose only purpose is to undermine the authority of Scripture. Here's how Andy Stanley explains what he means, quote, the problem with the Bible says is what else the Bible says. None of the other stuff in the Bible bothers you because you're a Christian, but for the rest of the culture, it is incredibly problematic. So rather than quote the Bible, he says, you should quote its authors. And then Andy Stanley asks, which is more credible, the Bible says or James the brother of Jesus wrote? Now, I don't know about you, but I find the Bible says a much more compelling argument than Andy Stanley says. But that, and that's one of the more egregious examples I could choose, but that's huge in the wider evangelical movement. And Andy Stanley is a hugely influential voice. And lots of young preachers and aspiring megachurch pastors listen to him and imitate him eagerly. And even if most of the evangelical pundits try hard to sound a little less radical than Andy Stanley, most of the advice that they're cranking out points inexperienced pastors in the same direction. And so for at least 40 years now, we've had a steady stream of books and conference lectures suggesting that Scripture by itself isn't really relevant. So they say we need to speak to people's felt needs instead. And eventually, I think we're going to have to acknowledge that this strategy really isn't fresh or innovative anymore. And in fact, it seems clear that a lot of church leaders today are absolutely convinced 
that just preaching the Word of God is kind of a lame way to do church. You have to be innovative. You must have a gimmick or multiple gimmicks and a smoke machine. If you want to capture people's attention in this entertainment-oriented culture, you have to do that. Preaching doesn't work unless you spice it up. And unless you think I'm cherry-picking one easy example, let me read you directly from some books and websites where gimmickry is being peddled as something you must have in the church. Here's an article from Lifeway, the Baptist publication outfit, titled, Three Simple Ways to Spice Up Your Preaching. And here are their three suggestions. Number one, try something new. For example, preach as a biblical character, complete with costume. Number two, incorporate visuals. If you're talking about money, have a suitcase with money pouring out of it. I find that hard to imagine. I I don't know where I'd get that much money, but... (laughs) Or, listen to this, or the woman at the well story would be well served with a pitcher of water. And I ask, why? (laughs) What would that actually improve? Or he says, place helium-filled balloons around the sanctuary to emphasize celebration. We've actually done that when we've come in here after some big wedding or something. There have been helium balloons, but not deliberately. (laughs) Or he says, and this sounds really fresh to me, doesn't it? You can play video clips from movies, television shows, etc. Everybody does that already. Or number three, this is his suggestion number three, involve the audience because after all, not only is our society more visual, they seek experiences. And he goes on to say, I've given people small rocks to hold while I preached on David taking down Goliath with a rock from his sling. I read that and I thought, I dare him to do that and preach on the martyrdom of Stephen. But then he says, when I preached on Moses before the burning bush, I reminded the people that this place was holy ground, so I asked them to remove their shoes for the remainder of the service. Or sometimes, he says, when I preach on trusting God with one's finances, I ask the people to give their wallet or purse to their neighbor to hold during the sermon. Did you do that before or after the offering, I wonder, you know? This one, he says, really keeps people awake when somebody else has their wallet. And finally, he adds, often I ask people to repeat certain key words throughout the sermon, which is a gimmick that, have you noticed, this seems really popular nowadays, and honestly, I don't understand why. It really annoys me when some preacher tells me, you know, turn to your neighbor and say this. Turn to your neighbor and say, boy, this guy really gets annoyed easily. But anyway, you get the point. The evangelical swamis of style are constantly telling preachers, you you just cannot preach the Word of God and expect to get results. You have to be bold and creative and clever and brief and politically correct and skilled in multimedia. And I clipped a number of these supposedly fresh ideas. I have a large file full of them at the office. One of them was a, a long tutorial at Sermon Central, a website, on something called multi-sensory preaching from a pastor who, you know, breathlessly described what a show he put on when he preached on the temptation of Christ from Matthew 4. If you do a Google search, you'll find this. 
This guy decided to decorate his church like a war zone, complete with a mash unit and everything. And he wore military garb and he dressed all his ushers and greeters in combat gear. And throughout this article, he kept saying how pumped he was about this. These are his exact words. The whole campus screams, war! Which didn't make any sense to me uh, from a sermon on the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. But as he described the scene, it was a commotion of activity as complex and as confusing as if the Chicago St. Patrick's Day parade collided head-on with the running of the bulls at Pamplona. That's what it sounded like to me. But anyway, let me give you just one more example. This expert writes, quote, Stories are good attention grabbers because, well, they're stories, and who doesn't want to hear a good story? And make the story about you because personal experiences are good attention grabbers. Makes the audience get to know you. Yeah, by all means, make your sermon about you. You know, because with a little creativity, you can write yourself into any biblical narrative, and that will guarantee at least that it'll keep your interest. (laughs) That approach is why my friend Chris Roseborough has nicknamed it Narcissus. (laughs) Narcissistic eisegesis. But think about it now. That doesn't sound like any of the apostles, does it? Notice... All of those suggestions are human schemes that are concocted to try to deal with or circumvent the fact that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Today's church growth gurus see that as an impediment that we have to work around somehow. And in that regard, all of these popular gimmicks are unbiblical and Utterly ineffectual contrivances, because you may for a while be able to gather a crowd with gimmickry, but all your best gimmicks combined together will never be able to give life to someone who is spiritually dead, or open blind eyes, or remove that veil of distrust and disbelief that Satan drapes over the eyes of and the minds of unbelieving unregenerate people. The Word of God is the only thing that can do that. And and furthermore, God's Word is always effectual for whatever purpose God has ordained. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You know, the these famous megachurch pastors whose reputations are built on laser light shows and publicity stunts always try to defend their gimmickry with an out-of-context appeal to 1 Corinthians 9.22, where the Apostle Paul writes, I am become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Paul says, I do it for the sake of the gospel, as if, you know, people quote that and, and try to apply it to gimmickry as if Practically any kind of tomfoolery can be justified as long as the motive is to attract unbelievers to church. Listen to Rick Warren's comment on that text, 1 Corinthians 9.22. He writes, Paul always allowed his target to determine the approach. Some critics might say Paul was being a chameleon. Not so, he says. Paul was being strategic. His motivation was his desire to see people saved. And then Rick Warren adds, I love the living Bible paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 9.22. Yes, whatever a person is like, 
I try to find common ground with him so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. I do this to get the gospel to them and also for the blessing I myself receive when I see them come to Christ. That's the Living Bible's paraphrase of that text. But I have to say, if you find that interpretation of 1 Corinthians 9.22 the least bit persuasive, just consider this. Paul knew full well that Jews demand a sign and Greeks demand wisdom, but he says we preach. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So here's what Paul says about being a chameleon or or giving people what they want. He didn't do that at all. He says the Jews demand a sign. We give them a stumbling block. The Greeks want wisdom. We preach a message they think is foolish. What Paul was doing was not very seeker-sensitive. It wasn't felt-needs-oriented. And it's it's not at all like any of the advice you will find in the best-known evangel from the best-known evangelical experts on culture and contextualization and church growth. When Paul was talking about becoming all things to all people, the context shows exactly what he meant. He was explaining how he tried to avoid unnecessary offense to the moral and religious and ceremonial scruples people had. For example, even though Jesus himself had formally declared all foods clean, Paul wouldn't go into a Jewish community and eat what they thought were unclean foods in front of someone whose conscience was still bound by the Old Testament restrictions. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 10.28, if you're in a pagan community and someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then he says, do not eat it. He's talking about, should we eat meat that's been offered to idols? And ultimately he says, there's nothing sinful about that. Yes, you can do that. But he says, if you're in a pagan community and somebody tells you, yeah, this meat was offered in sacrifice, then he says, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And then he adds this, I do not mean your conscience, but his. In other words, what he's saying there in 1 Corinthians 9 is that he was careful never to give the appearance of impropriety, because how can you commend yourself to someone's conscience if you've been openly doing the things that their consciences would tell them are wrong. And therefore, to those who are under the law, he says, I became as one under the law. Paul, who hated legalism probably more vehemently than all of us combined, Paul, the same apostle, uh, same apostle who admonishes us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, that same Paul was willing to forego his liberty when he's trying to reach a legalist with the gospel. That's all he's saying. This is not about trying to be cool. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, he says. That's the polar opposite of adopting all the badges of hipster enlightenment and political correctness in order to impress people with how cool and culturally savvy we are. That's not what Paul was doing. And notice an important qualification in all of this. Whenever Paul spoke of preaching the Word of God or proclaiming the gospel to the lost, he always stressed the need to be bold and uncompromising and unapologetic, clear, accurate, fearlessly straightforward. That's how you speak to someone's conscience. That's how Paul himself preached. That's how he urged Timothy and Titus to preach. And 
That's what needs to distinguish our evangelism if we want to be faithful ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador isn't entitled to adapt or or change any message that he's given. It's his bounden duty as an ambassador to deliver the message he is given without changing it, without messing it up, without toning it down. It's a serious job. And if you think the message needs to be couched in horseplay or shenanigans or toned down so that nobody's ever troubled by it, you're not doing it right. In other words, the dominant philosophies of postmodern church growth and ministry philosophy could hardly be more at odds with the style of ministry taught by, modeled by, and insisted upon by the Apostle Paul. The gimmicks and the shenanigans that have become, frankly, the chief hallmarks of evangelical style in our generation are the very things the Apostle Paul renounced and condemned. And I want to show you that from 2 Corinthians 4. Here's our full text, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Now, the chapter starts with the word therefore, and we have to ask what it's there for so that we can read this passage in its proper context. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3, the previous chapter, is that the true ministry of the Spirit cannot fail. Despite our inadequacies, Despite the blindness that dominates the world, despite the ferocity of Satan's opposition, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 8, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And the answer is, This is the gospel we're talking about. It cannot fail. Despite the current look and feel of this troubled Corinthian assembly, we who are truly redeemed, the authentic people of God, are being transformed into the same image, that is, into the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, although much about the gospel was veiled in the Old Testament, that veil has been completely removed by Christ, so that when He died as the full and final atonement for sin, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is now opened. And verse 6 of our chapter, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, in other words, everything under the gospel is now open and plain. There aren't hidden secrets or mysteries in the gospel. The veil has been taken away. All that mystery has been removed. And here's where you have the therefore. 
Therefore, meaning for this cause, because of the open, unveiled, and always effectual nature of the glorious gospel of Christ, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, meaning no, no matter how inadequate we might feel, no matter how small and troubled the Corinthian assembly might be, no matter how blind or antagonistic the world might be, since the mysteries of the gospel have all been brought fully to light, we do not lose heart. And he, he uses an expression there that means we're not faint-hearted. We're not full of fear and doubt about it. We're not faint-hearted. In the King James Version, it's translated, we faint not, meaning like we don't lose our energy, we don't wear out. I'm reading the ESV, which like virtually all modern translations says, we do not lose heart. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, we do not give up. But the best sense of it can be gleaned from the context. We are not faint-hearted. Since the gospel is plain and simple and distinct and now fully disclosed, our preaching is life, likewise bold and candid and confident. There's nothing timid or apprehensive, faint-hearted about our preaching. And the point Paul is making here is specifically about the style that distinguished apostolic ministry. The phrase, therefore, having this ministry, literally translated would say having this kind of ministry. What kind of ministry? God's Word is the substance of our message. And, and there's no need to soften it or conceal it under clever understatements or, or cherry-pick its contents in order to avoid the bitter aspects of the truth or mask it behind politically correct jargon or dress it up in a stylish costume or whatever it is people think they need to do to make the message palatable. We don't do that, Paul says. Instead, we make an open display of the truth. In other words, our strategy is very simple. Truth, which in the parlance of the Apostle Paul means biblical truth in its, its most bold, bare, and blunt expression, straightforward, crystal clear truth is both the goal and the main content of proper apostolic style evangelism. 2 Corinthians 2.17 we're not like so many peddlers of God's Word, he says. In other words, we're not catering to the tastes of a customer base. But as men of sincerity, he says, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ and we speak truthfully, unapologetically, straightforwardly. Paul had been accused by some false teachers who purported to be super apostles. You remember that? And they'd come to Corinth with the goal of undermining Paul's influence there. They accused him of various kinds of hypocrisy and compromise. They said he was insincere. They claimed that Paul had given the Corinthians only part of the truth. There's more they needed to hear. They said he was inadequate to lead the church, which is a point Paul himself concedes but then he answers it in chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. But these super apostles had raised questions about Paul's apostolic credentials. He wasn't like the other apostles. He hadn't 
spent time with Christ during Christ's earthly life. And so they questioned his motives, they questioned his character, they forced Paul to defend himself, which he did, not for his own ego, but in order to fend off these attacks on the gospel. And throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul will defend himself, and then he always backs away because it's odious to him to make any kind of boast. So he's defending himself, but he keeps saying, I don't like to boast, I'm not boasting. If I have anything to boast about, it's Christ. And here in chapter 4, he is answering the charge that he is a hypocrite. Some may have questioned his courage and the clarity and the skill of his preaching, too, because his reply would be a definitive answer to all of those allegations. This is a self-defense. It's not a carnal self-defense, and it lacks some of the sordid characteristics of today's Facebook and Twitter arguments, because Paul doesn't answer reviling with reviling. He doesn't respond to his critics in kind. He simply commits himself to the one who judges righteously, and he gives this discourse on preaching that explains why he preaches the way he does. And it's a very measured, thoughtful, edifying self-defense. And in the process, Paul addresses three temptations that all preachers face, all evangelists face, all of us really face it, three temptations that potentially undermine the clarity and dilute the potency of the gospel message. Here are three things all evangelists should avoid when they're proclaiming the gospel. And and unfortunately, there are also three things that are popular in 21st century evangelicalism. In fact, these three evangelistic faux pas are even encouraged by many of today's self-appointed experts as if these things might be helpful techniques. But in reality, Paul says, This is what he means when he says, we don't use disgraceful, underhanded ways. These are disgraceful and underhanded ways evangelists today commonly use to evade their sacred duty. These are strategies every faithful minister of the gospel must emphatically renounce. Mistake number one, trying to be clever. Trying to be clever. The whole obsession with innovation and gimmickry today reveals a a troubling fact about postmodern evangelicalism's attitude towards Scripture. The reason so many preachers and evangelists think attention-grabbing novelties are such a vital tool of church growth, the reason they think that is because they don't believe the Word of God by itself is interesting enough or powerful enough to arrest attention and make an impression on an unregenerate mind. It's the very argument that is frequently made. You can't expect to reach unchurched people if you're asking them to sit through a 45-minute discourse on what the Bible says. Bill Hybels says it like this, quote, Unchurched people today are the ultimate consumers. We may not like it, but for every sermon we preach, they're asking, am I interested in that subject or not? And if they aren't, it doesn't matter how effective our delivery is. Their minds will check out. And Hybels says, once he realized that, He began putting everything he could into creating clever titles for his sermons. He says, I'm not particularly clever, so sometimes I will work for hours on the title alone. Hey, I don't do that, by the way, and the guys who produce our our recordings will verify this. (laughs) I often don't even have a title for until they ask me on Thursday, what do we put on the title of the CD? 
and then I have to think it up in about 30 seconds. Heibel spends hours on that. He says, I do it because I know unchurched people won't come or they won't come back unless they can say, now that's something I want to hear about. Notice, in our passage, the Apostle Paul refutes every point of that rationale in careful detail. If unchurched people are unmoved by biblical truth, he says, it's because, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And and what's the remedy to that? What's the apostolic remedy to that? Verse 2, again, preach the truth as plainly as possible. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And notice how verse 2 begins. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. That's how the ESV words it. The Greek word there speaks of shame. It's the same Greek root Paul uses in Romans 1.16 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the sense of what he's saying here in 2 Corinthians 4 is, we are not secretly ashamed of any part of our message. Here's the NASB. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. My favorite translation of that expression is the Geneva Bible, the old Bible that existed before the King James. We have cast from us the cloaks of shame. He's talking about people who are actually so ashamed of the political incorrectness or the offense of the gospel that they paper over it or they omit it or they hide it somehow. Now, it's obvious that when Paul talks about renouncing shameful things, that would include secret sins like immorality and dishonesty and deceitful doctrines and unsanctified behavior. But the context here suggests he is mainly renouncing something very specific, something a little less overtly sinful than fornication or rank heresy. He tells us exactly what he has in mind, middle of verse 2. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Most versions say craftiness, where the ESV says cunning. It's the same idea. The Greek word means cleverness or mental dexterity or quick-wittedness. It's used in Luke 20, verse 23, to describe the clever ingenuity of those Pharisees' evil ingenuity who tried to corner Jesus with questions that seemed to have no easy answer. It's used in 2 Corinthians 11.3 to describe the cunning of Satan when he tempted Eve. Paul's opponents made liberal use of cleverness and deceitful cunning to disguise their false teachings. They would decorate their damnable doctrines with whatever spiritual flourishes or ornaments that they thought might make them look good, just like heretics today do. They would cover their scripture twisting with clever sophistry or pious-sounding platitudes, just like so many of today's false teachers. They were extremely creative in this art, as false teachers always are. You realize, I hope, false teachers never wear signs that identify themselves as ministers of Satan. They wear toothy smiles and shiny suits, and they disguise themselves as angels of light. They're cunning and creative and very, very clever, and they dress up like sheep, but they're wolves. And frankly, they are more interested in impressing you with their cleverness 
than they are with the clarity of God's Word accurately preached. They're fishing for the applause of men. They're more interested in gathering an appreciative crowd than they are in openly declaring the truth or dealing candidly with every person's conscience in the sight of God. That's the whole gist of the strategy known as seeker sensitivity. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. We want to build up people's self-esteem. And what we want in return is their admiration and their acceptance, and we strive to make them happy and comfortable with our message because the idea is maybe they'll like Jesus if they like us. That is precisely what Paul is referring to as a disgraceful, underhanded strategy, the exaltation of human cunning demonstrated by tampering with God's Word, even if only to sand off the sharp corners or mute the harsh unpopular truths. It may sound really shrewd and and diplomatic, but it opens the door wide for false teaching, shamefully disguised with human cleverness. And the church today is full of it. And Paul says, we have renounced such things. He uses a word that appears nowhere else in Scripture, renounce. It's a very strong verb. The Greek word has the connotation of utterly disavowing and disclaiming something verbally and with utter scorn. It literally means to speak off. And Paul was a nimble-minded Pharisee before he was saved, who, as Saul of Tarsus, no doubt had developed a tremendous amount of expertise in sophistry and casuistry and crafty cleverness. But as Paul the apostle, after his conversion, he swore off that style once he surrendered to the truth of Christ. And so this once arrogant scholar is no longer concerned with academic credentials or intellectual prowess or philosophical sophistication or the rules of oratory and artificial eloquence. Notice carefully, it is not articulate speech that he condemns, but things like bombast and pomposity and extravagant language or cutesy human cleverness. He wants clarity, not cleverness. He tells the Corinthians, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, he just wants to preach the unvarnished truth of the gospel with maximum clarity by the open statement of the truth. This is very forceful. He's describing how he preached with as much straightforward, forthright, plain-spoken candor as possible. This is one of those places where even the NIV gets it exactly right. They say, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I can't imagine that the Apostle Paul would commend the cleverness of contemporary preachers who, you know, exegete popular movies instead of Scripture. That's exactly the kind of tampering with the message he emphatically disowned and disavowed. So that's mistake number one. They try to be clever. Here's blunder number two, trying to be coy trying to be coy. Lots of preachers today work as hard as they can to be as indirect as possible. They purposely try to avoid speaking the whole truth. 
They intentionally shun absolute clarity. And above all, they refuse even to speak of the conscience in the sight of God. You won't hear them using stark, painful words that are aimed at the consciences of their people, words like sin or guilt or repentance. They avoid that because they actually seem to think that it's an act of love to soften the message in a way that would help someone stifle their guilt or suppress those troubling feelings of alienation from God. They have this nagging feeling that it's just not nice nowadays to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that, by the way, is the dictionary definition of coy. It's a reluctance to give all the details that could be revealed about something. Someone who knows the truth but just plays around the edges of it is being coy. It's a kind of falsely modest unwillingness to speak with absolute candor. That's the very thing Paul is condemning here. And notice what he approves and endorses. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The faithful preacher addresses the conscience of his hearers. And when you evangelize your neighbors, do the same thing. Speak to their conscience. It's it's not about impressing them or entertaining them or amusing them or, or even merely teaching them doctrine. Biblical preaching isn't an information dump or an opportunity to impress people with the preacher's artistry or aptitude. You have to apply the Word of God to the conscience. Speak to the conscience, not just to the intellect and not just to the funny bone. Because trust me, if you are exegeting popular culture or wowing people by, you know, coming to the stage on a zip line, you are not commending yourself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You cannot amuse people and commend yourself to their conscience at the same time. You mean I I should try to make people feel guilty? Well, no, not by manipulation and artifice. I mean simply that you let the Word of God reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And if you do that faithfully, people will not only feel the burden and the gravity of sin's guilt, they will also hear the only true remedy for that guilt. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not about financial prosperity and a better life. It's about the forgiveness of sins before a holy God. And there's no need to be coy if what you are preaching is the Word of God. You know, some preachers deliberately omit or soften into oblivion any point from the biblical text that might prick someone's conscience. They seem to want to help their hearers suppress or deny their guilt rather than showing them the true gospel answer to the sin problem. They think they're called to elevate people's self-esteem and make them feel good about themselves rather than speak truth to the conscience. That's one of the most common ways preachers today tamper with God's Word. They don't openly deny any teaching in God's Word. They just tiptoe around the hard parts and never bring it up. They think by being coy, they're being tactful and refined. But in reality, they are emasculating the message they were called to deliver. They're doing the very opposite of what Paul describes here. They're refusing to make an open display of the truth. And they're failing to commend themselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And you probably already know that I believe this, but I think subtlety is overrated. Which great prophet or preacher in Scripture 
was ever commended for being delicate and refined. Paul was certainly never coy or evasive when he preached. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 2. He says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Paul wasn't a man-pleaser. He didn't imagine that the gospel was weak or ineffectual just because people who heard him preach often turned away or turned against him even. Verse 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. The gospel is clear, and and we need to preach it as clearly as possible. And, And don't be tempted to veer from that strategy just because you think you can elicit a more positive response with some different strategy. You know, Rick Warren famously said, He said, quote, it's my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart, and the most likely place to start is with that person's felt needs. That may be the dumbest statement I ever read from an evangelical pastor. And that kind of thinking has packed churches everywhere with false converts, people whose felt needs have been catered to and whose itching ears have been scratched but they've never heard the full, complete truth of the gospel from someone who, like Paul, will address the message to their conscience without being coy. Our task as ministers of the gospel, witnesses for Christ, is to make an open statement of the truth, deliberately avoiding biblical truths that people might find distasteful or any other way of adapting the gospel to the tastes and temperaments of men. These are precisely the kinds of disgraceful, underhanded methodologies the Apostle Paul renounced. Don't try to be clever. Don't try to be coy. And here's a third transgression. Lots of People today commit when they follow the conventional wisdom about how to share the gospel with our neighbors. Number three, trying to be cool. You know, there is no more common cliche than the cool church with the pastor in skinny jeans who tells people, you've probably never seen a church like ours. You know, I live up in Santa Clarita, and it's well salted with hipster churches that have made an idol out of being stylish and culturally relevant, and every one of them is just like all the others. And I think every one of them, at one time or another, has hung a flyer on my door telling me, this ain't your mama's church. And every one of them wants me to know they have a kicking band and a pastor with tattoos and skinny jeans who sits on a stool instead of standing behind a pulpit, and his sermons are mercifully short, He likes to do movie reviews, and they talk about topics like social justice and global warming and animal rights, and they say they they are a community that's full of artists, and they love craft beers and creativity. But that's not creative. That's trite. There, There is maybe no more hackneyed stereotype 
American evangelicals are convinced that that kind of thing is totally revolutionary and, and, and completely unconventional, but you just look around, everybody's doing it. What they're not doing is proclaiming the truth with clarity and without apology. If you want to have an alternative style of worship nowadays, sing some classic hymns that have doctrine in them and reintroduce a little order into your worship. This craving to be thought cool is perhaps the besetting sin of preachers from the millennial generation. In fact, let's be honest, it was my generation raised in the 1950s and coming to adulthood in the 1960s, we pioneered this quest for stylish evangelism. To our shame, we started the ball rolling on this. I would love to hear the Apostle Paul's response if someone tried to tell him that his lack of style and personal flair was hindering the effectiveness of the gospel. I know exactly what he'd say because he says it right here, verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And I, I love the deliberate juxtaposition of Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants. That's how every Christian should view the hierarchy, pastors included, you seminary students, bear this in mind. It is not Jesus as chairman of the board and the pastor as the CEO. It's Jesus as master and me his slave. Nothing is lower on the social ladder than a slave. And and if you think it's important for you to be somebody in order to get the kind of audience you crave, you, you think too highly of yourself. And seminary students, again, remember this, if every time you make a conscious attempt to impress the young people in your audience with how cool you are, you are preaching yourself and not Christ Jesus as Lord. This is a crucial statement Paul makes. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. The visible church today is full of preachers who could not honestly make that statement. In fact, they purposely try to weave themselves into every biblical narrative. And this is done far more frequently than you might imagine. And if you're not careful, it's easy to fall into it. There's a video online of Beth Moore teaching on Acts 16, 14. And she tells, that's the conversion of Lydia. She tells her audience to cross Lydia's name out of that verse and write their own names in the Bible right there into that text instead. People love to read themselves into Scripture. They look for ways to make the story about them. It's not. The gospel message is not about you and me and how we can find success and prosperity and personal fulfillment. To preach the gospel that way is to preach oneself, not Christ. The gospel is about what Christ has done to save sinners. And and so don't make yourself the hero of your own stories. Don't put yourself, especially at the center of every biblical narrative. And there are books out there today that actually commend that approach to preachers and suggest it's an effective way to preach, unless you think I'm exaggerating. Listen to this excerpt from a book titled Narrative Reading, Narrative Preaching. Narrative reading, narrative preaching, reuniting New Testament interpretation and proclamation. And so it's written for preachers, and the author tells them, the story of God is still being written, and our task is to align ourselves with the landmarks on the biblical terrain, or better, 
to write ourselves, to inscribe ourselves into the biblical narrative. Can I just say, that's really bad advice. That's a recipe for narcissus. The preacher who thinks he needs to inscribe himself into every passage of Scripture is someone who's preaching himself rather than Jesus Christ. There are lots of preachers out there who do basically stick with the biblical text, but they manage to make the Word of God sound tedious and tasteless. I realize that's the case. Not all biblical preaching is good preaching. There are people who manage to make the Bible even sound boring, and shame on them too, because the Bible itself is inherently relevant, and it seems to me you have to be a pretty negligent preacher to make God's Word seem uninteresting. It usually happens when somebody's unprepared or handling Scripture in a slapdash or superficial way. And if you're, say, a Bible study teacher or a seminary student preparing to be a pastor, and if you discover your Bible teaching tends to bore people rather than finding ways to instill enthusiasm artificially, you may need to dig deeper into the Word and work harder in your preparation and improve the pace or the rhythm of your delivery. And if you find you simply cannot teach the Bible in a way that keeps the attention of people, then get out of the ministry, because if you're not gifted to proclaim God's Word, you're not called to pastoral ministry. One of the fundamental requirements to be an elder in the church is that you have to be able to teach. That's 1 Timothy 3.2 and and 2 Timothy 2.24. One of the pervasive problems in the evangelical movement today is a glut of pulpiteers who simply are not gifted to teach. Here's a summary of the point of our passage. It's quite true that fallen, unregenerate people are not naturally drawn to biblical preaching. That's true. The God of this world has blinded their minds. But, Romans 10, 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? You won't reach unregenerate people with human cleverness or gimmickry and cunning and tappering with the message and other disgraceful, underhanded ways of handling the Bible or evading the truths of the Bible. You might draw a crowd. You might might even manage to make some religious hypocrites out of previously unchurched people, but entertaining and impressing them isn't going to remove that veil from their hearts. Addressing the Word of God to their consciences is the only thing you can do that will remedy their moral and spiritual blindness. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. You yourself, as a believer, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That's 1 Peter 1.23. In other words, the Word of God itself is the only thing that can remove that veil. So even though people aren't drawn to it, we preach it because it is the power of God unto salvation. I'll close with this. Jeremiah 23, verses 28 through 32. Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their own tongues and declare, thus says the Lord. 
Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell, tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. The Lord will use His Word to convert people. All those, you know, spiritual themes that Christian bloggers are finding in the latest movies, those are ineffectual for that purpose. Preach the Word. Preach it with clarity and conviction and without hesitation or apology. Address the conscience of your listener. And I know the Lord will bless your efforts to evangelize. Let's pray. Father, we are commanded to preach the Word in season, out of season, and the instructions are clear. The strategy is not complex. Forgive us for ever thinking that we might improve on your chosen means for reaching a hostile world. And give us grace. Make us steadfast and immovable, and may we stay at this task and not be discouraged, but like the Apostle Paul, consistently proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow us on Instagram at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.